morning, Impact. Turn in your Bibles to Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. We went over this last week, and I have to tell you all that in, in studying and preparing for teaching about the 40 days and nights of, of temptation that the Lord God went through, I thought we'd get through this in one week. As it turns out, there is so much here, uh, you know, and it's not even one of those things where you want to go, well, Pastor Rob, you always go a little long. And this is, I, honestly, I don't, want to, I don't want to just extend it past, you know, the time when everybody's comfortable. I don't even get into that. I want to keep going in this passage until we get every little thing out of here. Because the Lord has shown me over the last two weeks, and we're going to go into a third week with this, a week for every temptation pretty much, how pivotal this was in the, in the life of the Lord Jesus and the starting of his ministry and how eternally do or die it was for us that he made it through this temptation. There's all kinds of questions that are going to be raised. Some of you have probably thought about these questions. You know, could Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, could he even sin anyway? Can he really honestly be tempted? probably his human side could. What about his God side? And I want you to put some of those questions aside because the Bible says one thing. He was tempted in Hebrews. It says this, just like you and I. The only difference was he didn't sin, but he was tempted. It's not our job to understand that. His ways are higher than ours. It's our job to believe that. So by way of review, let's build a foundation if you weren't here last week. There's a couple of fundamental things we learned together last week that should help everyone get on the same page. Very, very important that we do this. If you're a note taker, and increasingly I want that to be all of you, and to help with that, we've got some things coming hopefully in the next couple weeks to be passing out notes and fill in the blanks, things and bigger deals, because some of you are going, you really expect me to do that on that little communication card? No, we just expect you to fill out that little communication card. Bring your own notepad and fill that up too. But we'll have something for you in the next couple of weeks. All right, here's the things that you need to know. First of all, Jesus was tempted the entire 40 days and nights, not just at the end. When we read the passage in certain translations, it makes it a little more clear than others that Satan hammered him for 40 days and 40 nights. And then when it was over, the, the fasting part of the 40 days, he hit him with these three temptations. So, you know, a lot of times we read the, about the three and we think there's only three. Just like we read about the three wise men and we think there's only three. We read about the three gifts, we think there's only three wise men. Chances are there could have been 50, 60, 100 that came. There were more temptations. Jesus was worn down so that he'd get to the point, Satan could get him to the point where these three, which were really his trump card, the, the, the ones he wanted to use all along, he would play that and see if he could get Jesus to sin, get Jesus to break. Here's another thing people get confused, and I'll go quickly through these. It wasn't Satan luring Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted. It never was. And this is harder for some of us to accept, but it was the Holy Spirit who led Jesus out into the wilderness to be tested, to be tempted. And that's hard for us to hear that, especially when we know that in the Greek, it doesn't mean led. It means drove. The Holy Spirit of God drove Jesus pushed him into the wilderness for this time of testing. It had to happen. It was necessary. But it wasn't to do him in. It was to show him off. That's important for you and I to allow. God does not allow trials in our life to do us in. Satan loves trials coming to our life to do us in and to disqualify us and to get us shelved and to wipe us out. But God sometimes allows them to show us off in his power and glory. It's really up to us which way we want to go. Satan is the current, here's the next thing, Satan is the current prince of this world, elected each and every day by a democratic majority of planet earth. In the things that we do, in the words that we say, in the attitude of our heart, we elect him. We say, 
this is our landlord, and we'll prove it by the way we live. We live by his rules, not really God's. But to be more specific about it and more official about it, Satan got what the Bible refers to as the title deed for this earth from Adam in the garden. In the beginning, God gave Adam dominion, Adam and Eve dominion and charge and management over all of creation. There was only one thing they could do to forfeit that management and ownership, and that was to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What did they want to do? The one thing they're told not to do. Became the most desirable thing for them to do. And how did Satan get them to do this? By saying, God's not good. There's something better. There's even a better God to worship. You're not who you think you are, but you could be somebody better if you just do the one thing he said not to do. You'll find out how awesome it could truly be. That was a lie, but in doing that, they signed the title deed over to Satan. He's now the prince of the world. Now, I said that last week, and several people were kind of like, you know, that's a, I've never heard that, Pastor. That's, that's really wild. Does the Bible actually say anything about this? So quickly, I'm going to go somewhere we didn't go last week. You might just want to write this down, or if you're really fast in your Bible, you can turn to Revelation 5. It's easy. Open the back of your Bible. Last book. Revelation 5, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it even. And I began to weep loudly. Now this is John writing, the Apostle John writing this. Probably most scholars think he's banished to the island of Patmos because they couldn't kill him. They tried to. And he writes this in his old age. He's the only disciple that lived to be a hundred plus. And he's writing this and he's seeing a vision of the Lord. And he's weeping because, well, what if... What is something that, that matters this much that would make somebody cry? So you can't read it. It's the title deed. We'll see that in a moment. No one on heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even look into it. This scroll's unusual. This scroll is written on both sides. Only one type of document. And, and historians and theologians have found many of these documents in their archaeological finds. It's only one ancient document that the Hebrews used that was ever written on both sides. Anybody want to guess what it was? I've kind of given a lot of hints. I hoped for more. It's a title deed. Title deed to a piece of property was written that way. In this case, the piece of property is earth. Not enough, I'm going to keep going. Initially, even a title deed is written, gang, on only one side and only sealed with one seal. You can read about one case in Jeremiah 32, 6 through 29. Read that later. However, if the owner was ever unable to meet his financial obligations, obligations in the title deed, then here's what would happen. They would seal it up and they would write the debts on the other side. Everything which would be written would be the debts upon which, I mean, all the debts that were owed until he paid those off, and then they would seal it up on the other side, and they would put seven seals on that. So you got one seal on original title deed, and if they couldn't pay it or forfeited it, they'd roll it up again and put seven seals on the outside of it. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were marred and corrupted, and they began to die. What's the payment to get back the title deed of earth? A perfect payment, a perfect sacrifice. And the only one that could pay it is Jesus. So gang, Satan is only, how do I explain it? Satan thinks he's still the prince of this world, but he's not anymore. Actually, the title deed to earth was 
purchased back. When do you think it was purchased? And with what was it purchased? We will celebrate it when we're done with those little cups and bread back there today. Jesus paid for the title deed with his blood on the cross. But it's not effective for you and I. In other words, he loved us so much. It wasn't about just redeeming the earth and someday making it good again in paradise and wholesome. It was about loving us so much, getting us back. When we forfeited it and our new landlord is Satan, in came disease and death and the possibility of being eternally separated from God. Did you know that hell wasn't created for us? Anybody know that? It wasn't created for us. It's created for the demons that rebelled in heaven and Satan. But when we sign over to him, then we say we're going we're gonna to be a part of his team, then we go there too without God. When Jesus came to the cross, he purchased the deed back. If we put our trust and faith in him, we're part of his family. This is why this is so important. Friends, what Satan's trying to do with Jesus in those 40 days is get him to relinquish his mission and not buy back the title deed. That's why it's so important. And a lot of people look at this and go, was that just to strengthen him up and make sure he's strong for temptations? No, it's so much more than this. And it's so much more for you and I too. See, the, the world that, that God created when he had the title deed and gave it to us was absolutely perfect. It's a perfect world. So when people say things like, well, if God's such a good God and a perfect God, and why do bad things happen? You ever say that yourself? You ever hear anybody say that? And when you think that, or why do, you know, the tornadoes that have recently happened in, in Oklahoma, we serve a good God. Why, why would he let that happen? What kind of God lets something like that happen? or AIDS, or rape, or genocide, or all the injustice, just all the bad stuff we see. If God is good, why does that stuff happen? And that's the kind of logic that you and I use, but gang, when we do that, we're blaming the wrong person. God made this world absolutely perfect. Man's to blame for turning the planet over to Satan. So when Scripture says here in Revelation, who is worthy, it's saying, who is able to meet the requirements to pay off the debt? One only, the God-man. Fully God, fully man, lived without sin, became the perfect sacrifice, the perfect payment. And we don't have a time, I wish we did, to go into that. I want to talk about a few more things that are foundational and then talk about why these temptations are so important to us. Jesus purchased back the title deed, like I told you, with his own blood on the cross, so Satan shifted goals. Satan's one and only goal with the temptations in the wilderness was to get Jesus off mission. His primary goal with you, gang, is to get you to not receive the free gift of eternal life and put your trust in Jesus Christ. That's his primary goal, so that you stay on his team. He knows he's doomed now, so he's just going to take as many people down with him as he can. And you look at that and you go, well, if he knows he's lost, why doesn't he try to make it up? Why doesn't he try to reconcile? Why doesn't he try to do something? Because he's so twisted and so demented in his mind, he thinks he's going to win. And he may win a few battles. And it may look like he's winning sometimes, but the war's over. The war's been written in Revelation. He's, not, he's already lost the title deed. So if you put your trust in Christ, listen, Satan doesn't give up on you. It's foolish if you think he does. He simply shifts missions to what he's doing with Jesus these 40 days. The new mission now is to get you and I off mission. Okay, you're a believer. He lost that battle. But the worst thing in his mind is if you bring more people to Christ. If you actually believe all this and you try to rescue 
or help rescue your friends and family and loved ones. He'd rather you don't do that. So that's the mission he tries to get you off. And he does all this using the real temptation behind all the temptations, an attack on Jesus' identity. So you're going to see Jesus say, and you saw it in the video earlier, if you are the Son of God, then. It's what I call the if-then attack. It doesn't sound like much, but it's huge. If you're all of this, then logically, shouldn't this be happening? Well, if you say you're that, I want to believe you, but it doesn't really line up with this, the if-then attack. I'm going to give you the most important three words today, and, and sometimes I'll say this is so important. If you don't get anything else, just get this, but there's other things that are important too, so don't leave when I say these three things. Just write this down, these three words. Identity determines biography. I don't get it, Pastor. What's that mean? Identity determines biography. That means who you think you are will determine the story you write for your life. Does that make sense? I mean, who Jesus thinks he is, if Jesus comes to that knowledge and grows in wisdom, as Scripture says, and, and, and realizes I'm the Son of God, that's going to determine the story. I'm going to the cross. That's my mission, right? If Satan gets him to believe you're really not the Son of God, then he's going to get off mission and perhaps get on another mission. And that mission that Satan's trying to get Jesus on is the same mission that he's got millions and millions of Christians, especially in America, on today, right now. In fact, there's probably the single most dangerous doctrine in all of evangelicalism started right here with Satan in the wilderness. Some of you aren't going to like it. Some of you grew up with it. Some of you have heard me say it before and you know what's coming. But today we're going to expose it. I don't know that before this week, this past week, I, I ever really traced back where it started. It actually started in the garden. But this is the most pivotal point where we see it clearly for what it is. I'm not going to tell you what it is. You're going to discover it on your own. So, one way for Satan to get us off mission, and write this down, is something that I call mission exchange. One way, the most effective way, for Satan to get you off mission is to get you to exchange the mission that God gave you for anything, everything, doesn't matter, anything else. To put any other God on the throne of your heart other than the Lord God, other than Jesus, is off mission. That's his goal. And there's a million and one ways that he does it. One way is to make any other mission, any other thing, any other desire, any other appetite in your life supreme. Think about it. If money's supreme, you're off mission. That becomes your God. If sex is supreme, you're off mission. That becomes your God. Fill in the blank. If anything is in the place of God, it's obviously little g, God, in your life. And you're off mission as a believer. And it's so easy to do. And again, he does that using the if-then principle. Now listen, sometimes you're going to hear agnostics and even Christian, you know, maybe liberal-thinking Christians say about the Bible, you know, listen, the miracles were just allegories. They're, they're not really miracles. They're just what we want them to be. And actually, the Bible never teaches that Jesus was God or God's son. I'm not sure what Bible they're reading. Well, you see that. But right after Jesus, or right before Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted and the Holy Spirit led him there, wasn't there a declaration that pretty much puts that, you know, makes that, that refutes that? Does anybody know what happened right before? I mean, I'll give you a hint. He may have walked into the desert to begin the temptation dripping wet. <clears throat> yeah, he just got baptized. 
And what happened when he came up out of the water and he was baptized? We didn't go over this as much as I wish we had time for, but when Jesus came up out of the water and John the Baptist baptized him, there was a thundering voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is who? My beloved son. What does Satan keep saying to him? Just, just days later, if you're really the son of God, if? My father just said it a few days ago from heaven with a thundering voice. I, I know I'm the son of God. My father just confirmed it. And then the Holy Spirit came in the form of a dove. The whole trinity is right there at the baptism. One of the, one of the most pivotal moments in all of scripture. And yet, Satan tries something that seems ridiculous. His father just shouted it, goes out in the wilderness, and for 40 days, Satan's going to hammer him, I believe, with, if you're really the son of God, wouldn't it look more like this? If you're really the son of God, would this be happening to you? If you're really the son of God, would that be your future? And he's going to hammer away at that, which seems foolish because Jesus knows that, except that that's our greatest doubt, and that's his greatest tool. Gets you to doubt who you are in Christ, and you will be ineffective. Now listen, if you're still struggling this, let me give you something else that will make it even harder. Two, three weeks ago, we talked about when Jesus stayed in Jerusalem at the Passover and his parents took off and left and they went home and, and Jesus was missing for a day. Remember that? And they had to go back and for three days, they didn't know where their 12-year-old son was. You guys remember that one? It's only in Luke. I remember some of you being here. All right. And when they went, Jesus said, to them, didn't you know, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? So that's the 12-year-old Jesus, fully God, fully man, fully boy man, saying, didn't you know, I'm starting to remember who I am. I had to be in my real father's house. Now there's a curious verse, and we just touched upon it then, and I want you to remember it now. There's a little verse in between the passage when he's 12 and this passage now, and there's all these years that go from 12 to 30, and this passage said, and he spent the remaining days submissive to his parents, and the child continued to grow in wisdom. Isn't that a little bit freaky? How does God grow in wisdom? Doesn't he have all the wisdom? Philippians chapter 2 says that when Jesus came to this earth, he laid aside his divinity. This is so important. That doesn't mean he's not God, but he laid aside all his glory and divinity so that he wouldn't appear as God and wouldn't just do miracles to get out of everything, and every time he's hungry, he wouldn't just make food appear, and every time he fell down and bloodied himself, he wouldn't just heal it. He said, I'm going to do this the way they do. Fully God. Fully. Remember that. He grew in wisdom. So what that means is when his ministry starts is he could quite possibly on his human side still be learning exactly who he is. And Satan's going to pray on that. And he's late in the game. He's probably been hammering Jesus since he was a little kid. Doubt who you are. Doubt who you are. You're not the son of God. And this is his absolute last try. From, from after this, he's going to shift gears completely. So let's keep going. Satan does this pretty, pretty simple-minded tactic. Are you really the son of God? Seems like it wouldn't work. Just heard that voice. But he's got him right where he wants him in that he's weak physically. He's probably emotionally drained. He's in a vulnerable place like he may not ever be again. What's better to than to throw someone off course than getting them when they're down to think they're not what they thought they were. Now, to get you guys to understand this, let's take some, some things that, that we do know in our society, things we do spend time on. Everybody knows about Tim Tebow, right? Oh, now you're awake. All right. Well, everybody's telling Tim Tebow, you're not a quarterback. You're not a quarterback. 
And no matter what you think about that, just, just listen to this. Despite a couple national championships and a Heisman Trophy and the first year he ever played at all, taking the Denver Broncos to the, past the first level of the playoffs, I mean, say what you want about him. That's better than most quarterbacks who come right out, isn't it? You know what? What would happen if Team Tebow said, you know, before college or anything, you know what, you're right, I'm not. I'm not a quarterback. We do something else. Then I guess we'd never know that story. Here's another one. How many of you knew that when Michael Jordan tried out for high school basketball, his coach said, you're not a basketball player. I'm sorry, Michael Jordan. You're just not that good. You didn't make the team. You're cut. Raise your hand if you knew that. Some of you knew that. Well, Michael Jordan decided, no, my identity is better than that. I know I can be this. What if he would have just said, you're right, that's my identity. I quit. I give up. No, Michael Jordan. You see how words can affect us and alter our destiny? You know, people always point to athletic ability for all the greats, and that's certainly part of it with athletic greats, but the greatest of the great are the ones who don't let critics determine who they're going to be. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, the ones that just fight right through that, even though they've got some weaknesses and some reasons why they might not be the best, the greatest fight through that and say, this is who I am, this is who I was meant to be, and they stay on course. Gang, your life and my life comes down to identity. This is huge. It really comes down to who you are and who I am in Christ. Everything comes down to that. And who you think you are will determine what decisions you make, and it will determine how you live your life. For instance, do you think you're a victim? Then you'll live as a victim, with a victim mentality. If you think you're without sin and you're better than then you'll be a very religious person wrapped up in that. If you think that you're damaged goods beyond repair, then you'll never really realize the totality of the redemption that God paid for for you. You'll never really accept it because your identity is, I'm damaged goods. Identity determines biography. Who you are determines how you live. Jesus is the Son of God. That's a title of divinity. A couple of years ago, I did a series that lasted about a year and a half through the book of John. One word series named. Any of you remember it? Divine. Divine. That's everything about Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God, a title of divinity. He is God. That's what God the Father says, and Satan comes and he says, yeah, but are you, are you really sure? I know people say it. I know we, we all thought we heard a voice and everything. Now let's look at what's happening, Jesus, in your life. Because I think you'll see it doesn't really add up. You're not living the life of a king of kings and a lord of lords. So I think maybe the Messiah will come, but it's not you. In the movie Memento, Leonard Shelby tries to track down his wife's killer. I haven't seen this movie, but I read about it, and it sounds pretty cool. So I'm not recommending it right here, but let me just say this. Compli complicating the search to find his wife's killer is the fact that as a result of a blow to the head by the murderer, Leonard suffers from, anter uh, we're going to have a doctor in here tell me I'm getting this wrong, but here it is, anterograde amnesia. It's a condition that makes it impossible for him to remember anything new. It's a real condition for more than a few minutes. I mean, he can, he can remember something and talk for a couple minutes and then he's going to forget it. Only new stuff. He's got long-term memories, but new stuff just fades right out there. So to cope with his amnesia in this movie, Leonard creates a complicated system of notes and 
Polaroid photos that he puts around, and even tattoos himself to remember facts and string together evidence to find his wife's killer and exact revenge. Now, unfortunately, now watch this. Several shady characters in the movie try to manipulate Leonard's condition for their own gain, using his amnesia against him. They tell lies about his past, who he is, and their true intentions for him. That's what Satan does. That's exactly what Satan tries to do with you and me. See, in Christ, you have a new identity. Paul said to the Corinthians, you're a new creature, a new creation. God is now for you. And God is now your heavenly father. Your church is a new family. Heaven is a new eternity and a new destination. The spirit of God is in you. You have new power. In fact, scripture says you have the power in you that raised Christ from the dead. And Satan would come to you and say, and I don't want to raise a hand, any show of hands or anything, but think if he said this to you, are you really forgiven? You ever felt that? And when you do something really bad, you feel guilty about it. Are you really forgiven? Maybe that one was over the line. I mean, are you sure? Well, I know it kind of says someone here, but you're pretty bad. Are you really forgiven? Don't you really remember the horrible things you did? I do. I'll remind you. He's good at that. One of his names is the great accuser. Are you sure God loves you? Are you sure that he really cares? Because I see that you're suffering right now. Would a heavenly father who loves you really let you go through this? That doesn't add up. So I'm saying this isn't just Jesus he whispers this to. Doesn't he whisper it to us? It doesn't add up. Maybe like Jesus, you're broke, homeless, poor, hungry, lonely, or going through something, and Satan whispers, it's not how it should be. Not if you're really a child of God. So that's what he's doing here. Sure he loves you? Doesn't look like he loves you. Are you sure that God adopted you into his family? Doesn't look like it. In fact, these so-called brothers and sisters in Christ, aren't they the ones that hurt you? They don't seem like your brothers. Your, your, your Christian friends are not really that helpful. That's what I've noticed. It doesn't seem like anyone else is really trying to rally around you. Anybody else is really trying to serve you, and now we're shifting back to Jesus. Are you sure that God is your Father? Are you sure you're the one? And then back to you, are you sure you're a Christian? Are you sure you're saved and loved and redeemed and cleansed and forgiven? Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? All those big promises the Bible makes. If that was true, Pastor Rob, if that was true, would your life look like it does? Maybe I'm alone in that. I can tell you Satan whispers stuff like that to me. I don't know if he does to you or not. So he'll likely use the same reasoning and he did with Jesus and that he did in the garden. That's how old this stuff is. The if-then approach. So I got a question for you guys, rhetorical, think about it. Why is this simple, straightforward, and dare I say, childishly obvious approach so effective? Why does it work so good? I mean, I'm looking at a lot of you. I want to say names right now, just to kind of call you out, just to really get you to think about it, but I won't. Don. <laughs> or maybe I will. If, I mean, fill in the blank. 
if you want to be in ministry, then why is this, this, or that happen? Has anything like that ever been whispered to you? All the time. I know, you've shared that. And Conrad, if you love the Lord and talk about Him so much, would you have gone through the suffering that you went through? And I've seen this man grow and change and God do tremendous things in his life, but the world can look at his life and say, that kind of pain? And I could tell you that the Word of God says that God loves him greatly and is trying to mold him into a great man. But it doesn't look like it, does it? Sometimes it doesn't look like it. Hey, Pastor Ron, you're really supposed to pastor a church? You're really supposed to be in ministry? Because if you were, would you really lose your own church that you planted and started? You don't think I heard whispers like that? Maybe you just need to step aside and let somebody else do it. Or I could listen to God who said, I called you here and I have a mission for you. And if it's not there and with that group, it'll be somewhere else. But do you see how there's different voices? Who am I? The guy that shouldn't be in ministry? Or the guy that should follow the call that God gave me? Who am I? And Satan's going to try and whisper and go, you're not that guy. And I could be derailed. And impact wouldn't exist. And fill in the blank, because it's the same for any one of you. I'm looking out here, I know so many stories from you. And it's the greatest lie that Satan will ever tell you, the if-then approach. And why does Satan keep using it? Again, for the simple reason that it works. Listen, I'm not that great at basketball, I'll just admit it. It's not my best sport. But if I play you, and for some bizarre reason, let's go back to Conrad. <laughs> Conrad is a great track star, but I've seen him play football. I don't know what happened there. So if we were, but let's say we're playing basketball, and I'm driving to my right, and I do a layup, and, and Conrad doesn't block it. I'm going, okay, I guess he didn't see that coming. So I do it again, and he doesn't block it. And then I do it again real slow, and he doesn't block it. And I, and I do it 10 times and score every time, going to my right, doing a simple layup, and he can't stop it. Am I going to now stop and go, you know what, I'm going to start backing up and, and trying to drain the three-pointer? No, because I'm even worse at that. I'm going to keep on going because it works. And apparently he's not going to try and figure out a way to stop me. Doesn't care, just going to keep on letting me do it. Gang, it's as simple as that. Satan's going to keep on doing it because you and I don't seem to care. We buy the li identity lies and this is the simplest thing he can do and it's the most effective thing he can do and he keeps on doing it because it works. So we need to discover this morning in the time that we have left how to resist his temptations and to see victory in our lives. And to do that, we need to see deeper into why he does this tactic. If you figure out this simple little thing, he's probably not going to shift gears on you. He's probably going to largely move on to someone else. See how important this is? Not saying you won't have any troubles or sin or trials in your life because we're dumb enough to bring on our own trials. You know, it's funny. Remember that old co comedian, Flip Wilson? The devil made me do it. Remember him? The devil did not make him do it. The devil's not omnipresent. And we like to use the, the word Satan and we like to use the word the devil spoke and he tried to get me. Actually, he can't be in two places at once. And so I'm thinking he's probably not wasting time with me or, or, or probably not you. I don't know who he's spending time. I used to think Ahmadinejad, maybe that guy. But he's out now, so maybe it's the new guy in there. But he can't be everywhere. So he's, it could be 
demonic influence, but James says it's more likely that you and I are drawn away and enticed by the kind of temptations that are laid out before Jesus here. It's more likely our own evil desires and sin that's doing it. We can't even blame Satan for that. So listen, it has everything to do with these little words that I just told you. If and then. They reveal everything that we need to know about Satan, but few of us realize that they are a rather sobering mirror into our own lives as well. Think about how many times we assume things in life using if-then. Let me give you a couple examples and maybe this will make sense. I realize I'm kind of dumping a lot, but I'm trying to make these things simple so that they make more sense. All right, if we meet someone over six foot five, then he must be a basketball player, right? Or if we meet a gal over six foot five, we definitely think she must be a basketball player. If you're quiet, you must be shy. If you're a quiet person, then I guess you're shy. If you're Indian, from India, then you must be Hindu. Ever heard that? It's just an assumption. If you're overweight, then you must eat too much. If you wear glasses, then you're probably smart. That's the only one that's true every time. <laughs> Most of those are pretty harmless. But Satan takes this if, and, and there's a lot more. I'm just trying to get you to, to know some of these automatic cruise control statements we make that, that, that don't really make sense. We don't have all the facts. They're, they're not necessarily true. And most of them are pretty harmless. But Satan takes this whole if-then game one step further. Satan is trying to get Jesus to doubt who he is by making these popular assumptions that play very easily into or have worked fantastically for thousands of years on our weaknesses. And some of you say, but Jesus is God. Why would this... Why would Satan try this simple thing on God? He's got to have a better tactic than that. Well, gang, he doesn't. This is his trump card. You beat this, he doesn't have another one. And keep in mind that the devil has spent 40 days wearing him out with other temptations. Every temptation you can imagine wearing him out, getting him to doubt, doubt, doubt. And then finally, when he's at his hungriest and he knows the commitment he's made to fast for 40 days and it's over, he has saved these three up, these identity-challenging temptations. And that's why they don't look like that big a deal. Turn the stone into bread. I mean, really? But if you realize how worn out Jesus was and the real temptation behind the temptation, these are huge. I would put it this way, the real hook behind the bait. Does that make sense? Any fishermen here? Wow. Two. So I'll talk to you. I like to fish. And what's, what's the goal? What happens if, you know, Tyler, if you just throw a hook out there and just dangle a hook in the water? Fish aren't that dumb. They're going, that's a hook. No, I'm not going to. But if you put nice little bait and make it look real juicy. I love to surf fish when we go to the beach. Not everybody's into that. It takes a lot of work. And I've caught some pretty big sharks out from the, I probably shouldn't tell you that. Some of you who pretty big sharks right out there where we're swimming. And I found that when I really, really hide that good and just put all kinds of shrimp in there, I mean, I put balls of bait that big out there and just chucked them out there and got a bonnet head that went from about here on me to, the, to my, I mean, a huge bonnet head from that. And sometimes when it's not bobbing anymore, the, the pole, I realize that it's been out there too long. I got to bring it in because they're not being fooled by a hook. I haven't found too many fish that go, that's a tasty looking hook. I'm going to bite. But the bait looks good enough. We in life, the temptation looks good enough when we see the bait, we tell ourselves, there's no hook there. I'll just do that. I don't, I don't see it. Talk yourself out of it. That's what Satan's trying to do. These are good things from the one who really cares about you. 
The Father, He's having you go. I mean, He's just throwing the hook out there. There's no hook in my stuff. Just bait. I mean, I, I prefer to call it nice things, food, money, sex. But He's the one that hides a hook in there. So let's look at this. Luke 4, 5 through 8. And the devil took him up. This is the second one. A miracle. We don't know how he did this, but he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. Remember, he had the title deed so he could do it. It's a legitimate offer. For it has been delivered to me by Adam. And I give it to whom I will. If you then, what was that? If you then will worship me it's a small thing. It's really not a big deal. Just two seconds on your knees. Tell me I'm great. I'll give it to you. It'll be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So Satan comes to Jesus and preaches. And this is the part, remember I warned you a little bit earlier, so brace yourself. It's the part you're not going to like. Satan comes to Jesus, and for the first time that I can find, obviously, bluntly, right out there, preaches prosperity doctrine. Uh-oh, don't touch my prosperity doctrine, Pastor. I won't. I'll let Jesus touch it. Listen to what he says. And by the way, gang, last week we talked about he's already preached health. Next week we'll talk about how he's going to preach wealth, but this one's the prosperity doctrine, the whole thing. When he asked... When he said, Jesus, if you're the son of God, you shouldn't be hungry. Would the father let his son starve like this? Here, go ahead and just turn this stone into bread. That ought to be easy. By the way, could Jesus do that? Yeah, a little bit after this, he's going to turn water into wine. So this is not a big deal, right? And that's not a sin to do that. But who would he have to obey to do that? He'd obey Satan and everything would shift in the whole universe. This is huge. But it's also prosperity doctrine. He's basically telling Jesus last week when we went over that, make your appetite ultimate. Make your appetite supreme. Get some food in a miraculous way. Why? Because you can. You're God. It's amazing. Satan still preaches prosperity today. Now, by the way, hear me say this. I, I'm, I'm not saying having money or great wealth or, or being prosperous or having really good health or working on your health is bad at all. It's not. It's good. Those are good things. Might even be gifts directly from God. Probably are. But if they're God, if they're ultimate and if they're supreme in your life, they're horrible and they will destroy you. They don't make good gods. And that's what Satan's trying to get Jesus to do. Make them a little more important. Put him above your father. He's not being a father to you right now. I would. And he still uses Christian, and I say that loosely, and Christian circles today, to teach this. And there's so many books out there, New York Times best-selling books, so many preachers out there teaching this today, television, radio. So Satan comes to Jesus and says, I thought the father loved you. I thought the father was a king. I thought he owned the cattle on a thousand hills. You should be eating good food, not, not starving. You should be living in a big house, not be homeless. Do you even have anywhere to go, Jesus? I mean, when we're done here, where are you going to go? Aren't you going to stay with friends, those disciples? Where's your house? 
You should have a bunch of servants. You're a king. Not be left to fend for yourself. Jesus, if you really think about it, you're not God. This doesn't add up. In fact, it would be the opposite. So Satan's a prosperity teacher. And he's attempting to get Jesus to connect health, wealth, and prosperity with love and blessing every time from God. So hear that every time. In other words, he's trying to say, if God loves you, if the ultimate, good, perfect, loving being loves you, then the only logical way to show it, not sometimes, every time, is a lack of trials, a lack of pain, great prosperity above those that aren't his children, of course, right? And you're not going to be unhealthy. You're going to be the healthiest one around. Now, look at me, guys, gang. Doesn't that make a, a sort of twisted sense to us, doesn't it? I mean, think about your prayers. Think about your life. What do you pray for? God, help take this sickness away. I do too. God, I can't make my bills. Help me to have more money. And, and those things aren't bad, but isn't it easy to just bump them up a notch and make them ultimate? It's just a, sometimes it's just a fine line. It's just a little move. And if you do it, he won. You're off mission. And so it's really not that foolish what he's trying to do. He's worn Jesus down for 40 days, and he's just trying to get him to cross the tiniest of lines, just a little thing, just one toe over the line, and I've got you. And isn't that how he gets you? I mean, what if Satan came to you and just flat out said it? Hey, see that beautiful woman in your life? Why don't you sleep with her and ruin your, your life, get a divorce, crush your children, and regret it for the rest of your life? What do you say? Well, no, when you put it that way, I think I'd rather not. But he doesn't say that, right? I mean, he just, he just talks about the bait, the good part of it. Hey, here's a newsflash for you. Some teachers will teach, you know, even to sin, it's... You know, when the Bible says don't sin, it's trying to keep you away from stuff that's not even fun anyway. It's, it's miserable when you sin. That's a lie. Sin is not miserable. Or you wouldn't do it. And there'd be no such thing as temptation, would there? Would you possibly be tempted to do misery? No, we're tempted because the bait looks good. And Satan takes things that are good and just twists them a little bit. Who created sex? God did. Three of you know that. The rest of you are, I don't know, could be saying, no, God did it in the garden. Create a man and woman, good looking, hottest man and woman ever to live and made them naked. That's a cool idea. That's God's idea. And then Satan takes it and says, make it supreme. Make your whole life about sex. Make, be obsessed with it. And then all of a sudden, it's a little G, God, right? This stuff is so course-altering, so dangerous. So Satan will reel you into death, and maybe even some of you are tasting it right now in your life, economically, maritally, emotionally, practically, and he'll tell you the answer is more money. Elevate money on the throne. That's why you're not making it. The answer is a better wife. The answer is a better husband. The answer is it's not more of any of that. The answer is to get the hook out of your mouth, not more bait on the hook. 
The answer is to repent and get off the hook. So he says to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it'll be yours. Did you know that all sin, all sin, boils down to, some of you are going to say this is crazy, but, but it really does. Hear me out. Boils down to Satan worship. All sin. If you'll do this, if you just worship me, then I'll give you all this. All sin. Because you know what sin really is? I promise you, if I start polling all of you and you tell me what sin is, you're going to give me a list of sins and it'll be different than mine. There's some sins you really like, you prefer to keep that off the list. And there might be some that I don't think are a big deal in my life, they're great, and so I keep it off my list. And if I ask you guys, there's going to be a different list from everybody. But do you know what it really is to make it real easy? I'll tell you what sin is. The Greek word is harmatia, and it means simply missing the mark. It's an archery term. So when the Greeks did the Olympics and they would shoot for the bullseye and they would miss, the way that you would use this word is to say, ah, well, we would say I missed, right? They would say I sinned. I sinned. I was trying to hit the bullseye and I sinned. I missed. So what's the mark? Anything short of God's glorious ideal, anything short of God's perfection is missing the mark. And anything short of putting God on the throne of your heart is putting Satan on the throne of your heart. Could be in the form of money, could be in the form of sex, might be in elevating your children too high, it might be in your worship, your spouse, could be a million and one things, but anything over God misses the mark, that's sin. Which means it all boils down to giving Satan that landlord privilege in your life. And that's a shame, because if you're a believer here this morning, Jesus bought you back. And you're a child of the living God, but you're saying, but I kind of like some things about the old landlord. You know, the one that wants to kill me for all eternity? I want to go hang out with him. It kind of seems foolish when you get it exposed like this, doesn't it? So he works on Jesus and he says, I'll make you comfortable, Jesus. I'll make you successful beyond your wildest dreams. I'll give all this back to you. And he shows him in a moment of time all the kingdoms of the world. And you know what that means? Not just Rome, but I guess that would have meant future kingdoms, all the kingdoms of the earth in a moment's time. So he probably saw America and how powerful we are. And he probably saw, you know, Rome in the next couple hundred years, but all the kingdoms in Soviet, you know, Russia, what, all the eras, all this, where it'll ultimately go. It's just, let's just turn the corner right now and, and it goes your direction instead of mine. You don't have to bleed out on the cross. You just get it. Be painless, comfortable even, pleasurable. In fact, that's what a good God would do. I'll be your God, Jesus. That's what Satan is saying. That's what a truly loving father would do. You don't seem to have one. I'm willing to take his place. You don't have to go to the cross on some sort of death mission and be beaten and mocked and eventually killed. Hey, Jesus, what's loving about that? And he works the same thing on you and me when we go through hard times and struggles and trials. Wow, so you're a Christian now. What's loving about what you're going through? Again, so I don't get it. What kind of a father would see his child suffer like this and not stop it? I don't get it. And what did I tell you at the beginning of this message? That when we blame God for that, aren't we blaming the wrong person? 
He created a perfect world, sinless. And we said, no thanks. I know I have paradise. I know I can eat from any tree. I know that I can do anything I want, but I really want that one. Don't touch it. The day you touch that, you'll surely die. Death will begin to reign in your body and you won't live forever. You'll start to break down and ugliness will come in. I don't want that for you. But you know what? They forgot who they were. Plus, you think about it, they didn't know what death was or ugliness. They only knew perfection. So it was pretty easy for Satan to come to them and say, there's a perfection and a fun and a beauty above this, if you follow me. There was nothing above that. That was perfection, only below that. So it's the same tactic today as it was thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. I'll be your father. Let's face it, believer. If you're not experiencing anything but perfect, obscene wealth, great health and prosperity in your life, you're probably not the believer you think you are. You're probably not the child of God you think you are. And that's the greatest lie ever told. All right, we have one more temptation left, and that is for next week. So here's your homework for this coming week. Number one, identify. It's only two things. Number one, identify. Who are you? Get this solved this week. If you're a son or daughter of the living king, are you acting like it? Are you? If you are indeed a child of the Savior, do you really know your father? I would say there's no better day throughout the year to start getting to know your father than Father's Day. <clears throat> You know who does poorly with father-son, father-daughter relationships? Do you know who does poorly with this? The one who does not know their father. I mean, have you ever talked to somebody who says, well, I don't know who my father is, I grew up, or, you know, or even communities where <clears throat> single mothers and just, it's just, it's rampant and, and many of the kids don't know their father. And so I worked with a group of kids like this in Dallas in the inner city and the word father was like a cuss word to them. It's not a good thing to them. So to try and talk about having a great relationship with their father did not make sense. The one who doesn't know the idea of a father or what a father's supposed to be is going to have the hardest time conceiving of a father-son, father-daughter relationship. Makes sense, right? Jesus paved the way to the father when he gave his life on the cross. And some of you don't know that because you don't know the Father. You've never received the gift of adoption that He provided on the cross. You've never put your trust in Jesus Christ. So here's what I want to do. I want to ask a couple of the prayer team members if they would come up. Just any of the prayer team. We need one on this side and, and one on this side. I want you to be available, which means you're going to have to hang out for a while. And we're about to close with giving back to God and also close with communion. And during that time... I want you to feel free to come up for prayer for any reason, but if you don't know the Father as your Father, then come up and ask the prayer team, and they will tell you how simple it is and what it takes in your heart to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's your first thing. But for those of you that are believers here this morning, have you lost your identity? I mean, did what happened to Leonard in that movie, Momentus, did that, has that happened to you? Do you have memory loss? then how do you get back? What can you do this week? 
Number two, begin to rewrite your story. Identify, then rewrite. Allow God to begin to write His story in you. The one you were shaped for, the one that you were created for. And here's two real simple ways to do this. I'm amazed at how many times I wrap up a sermon and it comes to the same thing. Spend time getting to know His story. What does that mean? That means read the book. That's how He talks to you. That's the story of God and how we fit into it. I don't know how you can possibly have a close relationship with somebody if you never talk to them. I, just don't, I don't know how people do it. Or if you don't listen to them, both ways. It's a two-way street, right? And so sometimes when couples are really drifting apart and they're giving each other the silent treatment, it's real easy to just go, well, if you don't talk, it's probably not going to work out, right? You don't even know each other. So here's what I simply want you to do. Spend time in His Word. This week coming up, as we launch our website, we'll be launching it next week, the actual, real, official website. Also, the um, Impact Church app in the Apple Store will be ready in a couple of days. And in that, we're going to have devotionals that you can choose from a couple different ones. And if you need help with this, they'll guide you through a daily reading plan. Some will get you through the Bible 20 minutes a day, and you can read the whole Bible in a year. If you want to do it sooner, maybe an hour a day, and you can get through it in about four or five months, Spend time getting to know his story. And then spend time in response. Prayer. The Bible says pray without ceasing. That doesn't mean that you never stop and you stay on your knees and your hands are folded. It just means as you go through life, you're talking to God all the time. It's not just 30 seconds before you eat food that you say grace. It's all the time. That's how you build a relationship. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we're not just blowing through this passage like so many times in my life I've seen it. And God, I pray you forgive me for reading too quickly through it, Father. So much hinges on what happened in those 40 days, Lord. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you didn't turn back. I thank you that you didn't look at your own needs and your human pain and your hunger and everything. And even for a split second, consider turning away from the mission. Lord, I know that mission was the most painful, torturous thing anyone's ever gone through. And we abused our king, and we abused our creator, and we continue to do it now. We continue to act as though the real king is Satan, and you still love us, and you still say, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. I pray if anybody is sitting here and is serving the wrong master and the wrong landlord, help them not to wait too long, Lord, to speak with one of our prayer impact prayer team today and, and find out how they can come home and be adopted as a son or daughter. Be with us this week, Lord. Help raise this and help us to recruit and invite. Lord, make us an invite culture because you care about the lost and we should care about the lost. Build this team up because we've got a lot of glorious work ahead of us. We love you, Lord, and pray this in Jesus' name. Oh, and Father, even though it's man-made, I say to you today, have a glorious and happy and blessed Father's Day. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. See you next week.